Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Welcome back to History of... No, no, it's not. Welcome back to Stuff What You Tell Me. Yeah. Sorry for the ridiculously long break between episodes, but surprise, we're back just for a little flirt. This is the third and final part of a three-part series about the rise of feminism, written and hosted by our great friend and colleague, Dominique Riviglio. Dom actually wrote this script more than two years ago, but due to... Yeah, I want to say our distractions with various other projects, more our uselessness. We never got my uselessness. More Julian's uselessness. We never got around to finishing it and have been living with non-stop feelings of guilt the whole time. But as the saying goes, behind every great group of podcasting men, there's an even greater woman whipping them into action. Dominic is that woman. Thanks so much for your hard work, Dom. To our listeners, enjoy this episode. And we will hopefully see you again with our next random one. Hopefully it comes soon. Yeah, I've grown accustomed to the disappointment surrounding man's timing, either premature or struggling to arrive at all. Despite the male tardiness, here we are with part three of Power to the Pussy. Riot Girls. From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel, treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing, until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world-changing or inconsequential. The characters who forge their own paths and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face and say, stuff you and stuff what you tell me. So, to catch you up on where we are, we've seen how in the first wave of feminism, women at the turn of the 20th century began fighting for their rights and recognition in the political sphere, to then in the second wave during the 1960s, pushing forward with sexual liberation. Today, we are going to see how the third wave of feminism saw the changing image of women as portrayed in the media. Ten years after Betty Freeman's Feminine Mystique was published in 1963, women made up half of the workforce in Western countries, Go, ladies! The women's liberation movement during the 1960s and 1970s had fought and had made many advances towards equality of the sexes. But the momentum slowed during the 1980s. Western women embraced the freedoms which the past 20 years of activism had awarded them. But a rising conservatism in the Western world, with women focused on their personal goals, put the broader women's right movement on the back burner during that decade. During the 1980s, the ideology of feminism evolved and once again fractured just as we had seen happen after both world wars. The women's movement split into two opposing ideologies, difference feminism and equality feminism. Equality feminism, also known as liberal feminism, was an ideology which believed that by highlighting similarities which men and women share, one could have a better argument for equality between the genders. Liberal feminists believed that the differences between the genders was the proverbial wall stopping women from gaining equality. 
They pushed for gender-neutral laws and a gender-neutral society, as they felt this was essential for changing gender inequality. The reaction to equality feminism was the appropriately named difference feminism. Whereas equality feminism focused on eliminating the social disparities between the genders, difference feminism argued that treating genders identically is not needed in order to gain equality. In fact, they believe that gender neutrality is actually harmful towards women, as it motivates them to imitate men and ultimately takes away the unique contribution that women bring to society and to the world. To a degree, difference feminism was drawing on strains of ideologies expressed during the first wave of feminism in the 1890s. An example would be Elise Olsner, a German writer and feminist who was active in the late 1800s. She wrote about how women should not only be allowed in male-only spaces, such as science departments and boys clubs, but that these institutions have a responsibility to change to incorporate feminine values. Difference feminists believe that in the modern sphere, men and women are different in many significant ways, and that these feminine characteristics were an integral part of a society. A small group of difference feminists felt that not only were women and men different with different values, but that women and their values were superior to that of men. Examples of this type of feminist would be someone who believes in essentialism, the idea that every entity has a set of attributes which are necessary to its identity and function. This meant that when it came to male behavior, these ladies believed men were at a predisposition to be abusive towards women, and this made all men problematic. This would mark the beginning of the stereotype of the man-hating feminist. The third wave of feminism crashed into this landscape in Western countries during the early 1990s. Three distinct events between 1991 and 1993 have been credited with leading this new movement. These were the controversial testimony of Anita Hill against her former boss and Supreme Court nominee, Clarence Thomas, an article by Rebecca Walters which covered that whole incident, and a group of badass women of instruments and a whole lot of anger trapped inside, known as Riot Girls. Anita Hill was born on the 30th of July 1956 in Lone Tree, Oklahoma, to Albert and Irma. Hill's maternal grandfather's side of the family was born into slavery in Arkansas, and she was an African-American woman living in a predominantly white state. Anita was diligent and driven from a young age, and eventually studied at Oklahoma State University. In 1977, she graduated with honors in a bachelor's degree in psychology. She continued her studies at Yale Law School and in 1980 completed with honors her doctorate of jurisprudence. Aspiring to follow a career in law, Hill passed the District of Columbia bar exam in 1980 and began working as an associate at a DC law firm. Her career took off. In 1981, she started working as an attorney advisor to the assistant secretary of the US Department of Education in their Office for Civil Rights, a man named Clarence Thomas. In 1982, she followed Thomas to the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, when he became its chairman. In 1983, however, Hill left her job with Thomas and went back into the education system, teaching law at various universities across Oklahoma. Although she didn't know it at the time, her story of Clarence Thomas was far from being over. In 1991, Clarence Thomas, who had become a federal circuit judge, was nominated by President George H.W. Bush to become an Associate Supreme Court Justice. Protocol required a Senate hearing to be held for this appointment, and this occurred on the 10th of September, 1991. Thomas had only served as a D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals judge for one year. However, it was argued that his good character could make up for his lack of experience. 
At first, there was little opposition to Thomas's nomination, and the hearing was completed with the conclusion that he was qualified, making his nomination seem a sure thing. But events from his past were about to come to the fore. A week before this confirmation hearing, on the 3rd of September 1991, the Judiciary Committee had asked Anita Hill to provide background information on Thomas as a sort of reference for the Senate hearing. What came out of this background check were allegations that Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed Anita when she had worked for him. According to Anita, up until this point in time, she had only informed a few confidants in her private sphere about this. If you think it's hard for women today to bring up claims of sexual harassment, well, in 1991, it was unheard of. Feeling bound by duty, not only as a representative of the law, but also as a woman, Anita nevertheless wrote about Thomas's behavior in the reference letter for the Senate hearing, meaning that these senators must have been aware of these allegations before the hearing had even started. According to Anita, Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee did contact her. At first, she was reluctant to give an affidavit on the matter, but after multiple conversations with panel staff, Anita decided that talking to the FBI was the right thing to do. According to Joe Biden, who was the head of the Judiciary Committee and other members of the White House, it was only on the 12th of September, after the hearing was done, that the Senate was first made aware of Anita's allegations. Biden said, quote, She insisted her name not be used and Thomas not be told of the allegations, effectively tying our hands, end quote. This kind of he said, she said bullshit would become a main characteristic of this trial, an aspect which continued for some years after the trial was over. Throughout the trial, the contradictions between what Anita was saying and what Senate members said would be pointed out and highlighted in the media. When later asked as to why she had waited till after Thomas's hearing to involve the authorities in investigation, Anita Hill said, quote, I spoke with the Judiciary Committee about it early in September, and through a number of discussions, it was not until the 20th of September that an FBI investigation was suggested to me, end quote. Anita criticized how the Judiciary Committee handled her grievances during the early stages, saying, quote, I had tried for nearly two weeks in September to put a confidential account of my allegations before the 14 male members of the committee, end quote. The FBI's investigation started on the 23rd of September 1991. This full and thorough investigation lasted three days, consisted of an interview and a follow-up report submitted to the White House and the Judiciary Committee. After this, the then White House Deputy Press Secretary, Judy Smith, stated that the report yielded no reason for concern. With this information, on the 27th of September, the committee voted on whether to recommend Thomas's nomination, resulting in a 7-7 tie. To break this deadlock, they voted again, this time 13-1, to to push his nomination through to the Senate without obtaining a recommendation first. On the 6th of October, the report of the interview conducted by the FBI was leaked to the press. And due to the public exposure the story received, the hearing was reopened and the committee called on Anita Hill to publicly testify. So on the 11th of October 1991, she sat in front of a panel of 13 men and one woman at a televised hearing and gave testimony that she was sexually assaulted by Thomas while he was a supervisor at the Department of Education and then again while they worked at the EEOC. She elaborated by stating that Thomas invited her out socially on many occasions. After she declined his many advances, she claimed that Thomas would use work hours to allude to sexual subjects or behavior. After a brief discussion of work, he would turn the conversation 
to a discussion of sexual matters. His conversations were very vivid. He spoke about acts that he had seen in pornographic films involving such matters as women having sex with animals and films showing group sex or rape scenes. He talked about pornographic materials depicting individuals with large penises or large breasts involved in various sex acts. On several occasions, Thomas told me graphically of his own sexual prowess. Because I was extremely uncomfortable talking about sex with him at all, and particularly in such a graphic way, I told him that I did not want to talk about these subjects. Anita attempted to explain some of Thomas's strange and inappropriate behavior by giving many different types of scenarios. One example is when Anita recalled one day when Thomas examined a can of Coke on his desk, after which he began asking everyone in the office, quote, who has put a pubic hair on my Coke, end quote. Anita faced the utmost scrutiny during her trial, arguably more than Thomas himself had. Some of the arguments against her testimony included the time delay of 10 years between Thomas's actions and Anita's allegations, the fact that Anita had left her job to continue working as Thomas's assistant, and that there were two occasions when Anita and Thomas saw each other after she had stopped working for him. I've got to determine what your motivation might be. Are you a scorned woman? Do you have a militant attitude relative to the area of civil rights? Do you have a martyr complex? The issue of fantasy has arisen. Are you interested in writing a book? It is appropriate to ask Professor Hill anything any member wishes to ask her to plumb the depths of her credibility. Do you have anything to gain by coming here? Has anybody promised you anything by coming forth with this story now? The witness did not say anything to the FBI about uh, the described size of his penis, the description of the movie Long Dong Silver about the pubic hair in the coke. I did think that uh, Senator Specter pointed out some inconsistencies. All we've heard for 103 days is about a, a most remarkable man, and they scoured his every shred of life, and nobody but you has come forward. Anita, along with her legal team, fought to counter every argument that was brought forth. She explained that initially she would have preferred not to have to go through a whole ordeal of a trial and questioning, but that when Thomas was being put up for a position on the Supreme Court, she, quote, felt an obligation to share information on the character and actions of a person who was being considered for the Supreme Court justice, end quote. She also explained that even though she had experienced harassment from Thomas, she remained working for him when he moved to the EOC because, quote, Working in a reputable position in the civil rights field had been my ambition. End quote. She stated she believed the work she could do for the civil rights movement was more important, claiming she quote, only realized later in my life that this ambitious venture was a poor judgment and that at the time it appeared the sexual overtures had ended. End quote. There were also four other women willing to testify in support of Anita's claims but they were never called to the stand. The Times claimed this was because, quote, a private compromise deal was struck between the Republicans and Joe Biden, end quote. 
On the 15th of October, 1991, the Senate voted 52-48, the narrowest margin vote in the 20th century, to instate Clarence Thomas as a Supreme Court judge. He had flat out denied any and every allegation during the hearing and still serves as Supreme Court justice to this day. In that same time, Anita Hill had faced countless injustices, scrutiny and attacks on her character and integrity. Many books have been written, some stating Thomas's innocence, others finding evidence to back Anita's story. An autobiography by Thomas, in which he claimed, quote, Pro-choice liberals who feared that I would vote to overturn Roe v. Wade if I was seated on the Supreme Court used the scandal against me, end quote. He then went on to describe Hill as, quote, touchy and apt to overreact, and her work at the EEOC was mediocre, end quote. Continuing by saying, quote, she was a left-winger who had never expressed any religious sentiment whatsoever, and the only reason why she had held the job in the Reagan administration was because I had given it to her, end quote. Despite her ordeal, she managed to keep her head up and live a successful life. Anita continued teaching law and became involved in social programs, wrote books, appeared on television interviews, and found many ways to either raise awareness or fight against issues created by race and gender. Although she was not able to stop the appointment of Clarence Thomas, her case led to many positive developments for women and their rights within the American judicial system. Shortly after the hearing, Congress passed a bill giving harassment victims the right to seek federal damage rewards, payback, and reinstatement. Within one year of Anita's ordeal, the amount of complaints filed with the EEOC went up by 50%. Not only does this suggest that Anita's bravery helped others who were suffering to stand up against their oppressor, but it also changed much of the public's opinion on whether Anita was telling the truth or not. People believed her. Private companies began training sessions to combat sexual harassment in the workplace, and today, those sexual harassment programs are mandatory to all employees and employers. But possibly the most important change which occurred was within the justice system. The Senate Judiciary Committee had fallen way short in their attempts to manage this whole situation. One obvious aspect was the way in which the committee had challenged and dismissed her accusations at every turn, not once working with Anita to find the truth in the pursuit of justice. This upset many female politicians, lawyers and judges, but also many other ordinary American women. ADC Congressional Delegate Eleanor Holmes Norton claimed that Anita's case was a huge factor leading to the large amount of women elected into Congress in 1992, stating, quote, Women clearly went to the polls with the notion in mind that you had to have more women in Congress, end quote. In September 2018, Anita Hill found herself writing an op-ed in the New York Times over the sexual assault allegations that had been brought up against Brett Kavanaugh, who had been nominated for Supreme Court judge. They were made by Christine Blasey. She claimed he had sexually assaulted her while at college. Every argument used against Anita in 1991 was pushed in Christine's face. And just as of Justice Thomas, another man of a sordid reputation was again placed in one of the top positions within the U.S. justice system. Nearly 30 years after Anita Hill's experience had brought awareness to difficulties that women faced, it seems that not much had changed. Many of the women actively involved in the push for the third wave of feminism were African Americans. As we discussed in the second episode of the series, between the 1960s and 70s, African American women were furiously fighting for their rights in both race and gender. 
Another African-American woman who had a huge impact on feminism in America during the 90s was Rebecca Walker. She's actually credited with introducing the term and many ideas of the third wave of feminism. Walker was born Rebecca Lathenthal on the 17th of November 1969 in Jackson, Mississippi to Alice Walker and Melvin Lathenthal, a well-known civil rights lawyer at the time. Walker's mother was African-American and her father was Jewish, making them the first married interracial couple in the whole of Mississippi. Damn! Her parents moved to Jackson from New York in 1967 for her father's work. The couple often encountered threats, aggression or persecution from white racist neighbours, as well as the local KKK, who probably included their white racist neighbours. The emotional strain on their marriage, caused by leading a life of fear from constant persecution, was too much, and Rebecca's parents were divorced in 1976. After this, Alice moved to California, and Mal moved back to New York. As a child, Rebecca moved between these homes. Normally, she would live in each state for two years before moving back again. This meant that Rebecca experienced two very different environments. Her father's white Jewish family lived in one of the most affluent parts of New York City. Her mother fell into a largely African-American circle of friends who were all either creatives or activists. Also, let's face it, New York and California could not be more different. Rebecca's mother, Alice, became an esteemed American author who won a Pulitzer Prize for fiction and other awards for her book, The Color Purple. The story is set in Georgia during the 1930s and it follows the lives of African-American women, highlighting issues of gender, race and black women's status in society at the time. It paints a picture of the intense suffering and injustice black women faced in the 1930s. Alice was religious and spiritual. Both of these aspects influenced her novels, many of which were aimed at elevating black women. During the 90s, she moved through music industry circles. She was even romantically involved with singer-songwriter Tracy Chapman, describing their relationship as, quote, delicious and lovely and wonderful, and I totally enjoyed it, and I was completely in love with her, but it was not anybody's business, end quote. In California in 1984, together with Robert L. Allen, Alice co-founded a feminist publishing company called Wild Tree Press. She remained involved in feminist activism throughout her career as a writer, and her daughter Rebecca would inherit her passion for the cause. During her teenage years, Rebecca started living more frequently for her mother and less so for her father, until she permanently moved in with Alice and changed her name to Walker. Rebecca described her mother's parenting style by saying, quote, In my mother's youth, the ideal was for modern women to break away from the stereotype of the woman stuck at home because she's surrounded by children and domestic duties. Having a career was the thing she was aiming for, not life as a traditional wife and mother. End quote. When later asked as to why she decided to permanently live with her mother, Rebecca said, quote, When I was with my dad, the world was white and Jewish, and I do not cope with that. Black people made fun of me for acting white, and white people thought I was Puerto Rican or an immigrant from someplace that was Spanish. When I was older and went walking in the New York suburbs with my father's white children from his second marriage, I was often mistaken for the children's foreign nanny. I really hated that life. I didn't fit in, and my father didn't see that. He thought everything would work out and couldn't understand why I was so angry. End quote. When she finished high school, Rebecca went to study at Yale University, where she prospered in the lifestyle and liberal culture of the university. Her mother was famous within the entire liberal and hippie student population, which meant Rebecca was warmly welcomed into all the student activism groups while studying. 
Rebecca explained why she followed the path of activism, saying, quote, I was a movement child. My parents were involved in the civil rights movement and decided to defy the segregation laws by getting married. End quote. She had inherited activism from her parents, but it was her time at university that molded her into her own unique type of activist. The type of activist who could start a new wave of feminism and become a new age, multiracial, bisexual, feminist leader to a whole new generation of women. Rebecca graduated from Yale in 1992, which is also the same year that she published what would become a famous essay in Ms. Magazine. Miss Magazine had been co-founded between 1971 and 1972 during the second wave of feminism by Gloria Steinem. It was a liberal feminist magazine, one of the first of its kind at the time. When explaining why she started the magazine, Steinem said, quote, I realized as a journalist that there really was nothing for women to read that was controlled by a woman. And this caused me, along with a number of other women, to start Miss Magazine. I wanted a publication that would address issues that modern women cared about instead of just domestic topics such as fashion and housekeeping, end quote. The first edition of Miss Magazine was published in 1972, and its cover depicted a woman with blue skin, resembling the Hindu goddess Durga, the brave protective mother with eight arms, and in her many arms she holds all the objects with which a woman must juggle on a daily basis. A skillet, a typewriter, a clock, a rake, a telephone a steering wheel, a mirror, and an iron. When the first issue was released, Harry Reasoner, an ABC Nightly News anchor, said, quote, I'll give it six months before they run out of things to say, end quote. The first edition sold 300,000 copies within the first three days. Booyah! And continues as a successful magazine today. Harry Reasoner clearly underestimated women's capacity for having things to say. Most importantly, it was in Miss Magazine where the words third wave of feminism appeared for the first time. In 1992, Rebecca felt, as many women living in America at the time probably did, the events which had transpired the previous year during the Hill vs. Thomas case were a huge slap in all of their faces. An alleged sex offender had become a Supreme Court justice and the possible victim was made out to be a liar or a con artist. This sent the message that if you sexually harass assault or rape a woman in America, it's all going to be okay because not only is the American judicial system on your side so you won't go to jail for it and it won't affect your life, but also the woman accusing you will be called a liar and her character will be defaced in a courtroom and in the public eye. So Rebecca took the sense of letdown and hurt and channeled it into an essay titled Becoming the Third Wave. In this piece, she criticized every aspect of the Hilvers Thomas case. She also highlighted a problematic narrative which she saw in African-American culture, that civil rights are more important than women's rights. If you have longer memories than the men who make this podcast and can remember back a year and a half ago, we saw in a previous episode that this was a big issue during the second wave of feminism. She also went on to explain what she felt were topics in feminism not entirely dealt with during the second wave, and called on all women to unite proactively to energize the fight for their rights. The final paragraph of Becoming the Third Wave reads, quote, So I write this as a plea to all women, especially women in my generation. Let Thomas's confirmation serve to remind you, as it did me, that the fight is far from over. Let this dismissal of a woman's experience move you to anger. Turn that outrage into political power, do not vote for them unless they work for us. 
Do not have sex with them, do not break bread with them, and do not nurture them if they don't prioritize our freedom to control our bodies and our lives. I am not a post-feminism feminist. I am the third wave. End quote. By the end of 1992, she had co-founded the Third Wave, which later became the Third Wave Foundation. This is an organization dedicated to supporting young women who are most vulnerable to discrimination, women of color or who are queer, intersexual or trans. It assists in giving these women the resources needed to succeed in life and become leaders in activism in their communities. Rebecca's whole life's work has been dedicated to feminist activism. As her main profession is being a writer, she has produced much written work on top of teaching and giving speeches on topics of gender, race, social justice and power struggles. In 1994, she was named one of the 50 future leaders of America by Time magazine. So with that, we're going to take a quick ad break and on the other side, we will rock your socks off by telling you the story of the Riot Girls. Welcome back. The third and I would say most fun event which completed the foundations of the third wave of feminism took place in a completely different sphere than any we have come across so far. Pop culture. Most women active in the third wave of feminism were born during the second wave in the late 60s and 70s. They were part of Generation X, children born after the baby boomers but before the tech-driven millennials. Generation Xs grew up at a time where social morals and values were changing. Having more liberal parents meant less parental control or supervision than generations who had come before them, as well as having mothers who were part of the workforce. They grew up in households that saw higher rates of divorce, uh, which is often used as an example that feminism damages traditional households rather than traditional households were damaging females. Generation X has also been called the MTV generation and have been credited with advances in musical genres such as grunge, hip-hop and girl rock. They have had a profound impact on the popularization of indie films and documentaries, as well as pushing for creative entrepreneurism. It was within all these avenues that third-wave feminists pushed their ideologies and fought to change persisting issues of women's rights. A new revolution was happening in music in the early 1990s, which saw the emergence of grunge, punk and rock bands, male musicians playing their instruments in protests. Unlike the 60s happy hippie protest music, these were pissed off youths who were angry at the system and used music to express their frustrations. Bands such as Nirvana, NoFX, Rage Against the Machine, Sonic Youth and the Cranberries set the stage alight, sometimes literally. Although initially the scene was male-dominated, women would gradually become part of this music revolution. At first there were mixed gender bands, but soon after the badass old girl bands would make their presence known. This movement of female bands, which would become a conduit for feminism, was known as Riot Girl. It was pioneered by groups of young women who were creating feminist zines at first, but later decided to join their male counterparts by picking up musical instruments, taking to the stage, and starting this new genre of punk music. These were not like any other women seen in the media and entertainment before. These were not cute, sweet damsels in distress. These were pissed off women wearing combat boots, riding slut on their stomach with makeup, all while screaming feminist-driven lyrics into a microphone which they would pretend to jack off on stage. The roots of the Riot Girl movement had already developed in the 1970s with the rise of female musicians in the US and Britain, such as the Raincoats, Joan Jett, the B-52s, as well as the female folk singers in New York City who were writing social political lyrics. Influenced by this influx of female musicians, in the mid-1980s in Vancouver, Canada, 
a two-piece boy-girl band called Mecca Normal was formed. The lyrics and style of lead singer-songwriter Gene Smith influenced other bands to start on the west coast of the US. One of the best-known early bands was Sugar Baby Doll from San Francisco. The first members of Sugar Baby Doll were two women, Kat Beeland and Courtney Love. Courtney Love would become an icon of the decade. She married, uh, and some would claim murdered, Kurt Cobain, and started the successful band Hole, which also pushed feminist ideologies. The anti-establishment nature of punk had allowed men to express themselves in any and every way they wanted since its inception in England in the 60s. Punk music allowed people to get excited, angry, and as political as they wanted while on stage. It had given men a new arena in which to spread their views on the world. Women wanted to be allowed to express themselves in such a manner too. But many female musicians had originally felt that the punk movement gave them no space to push their agendas as the whole culture was steeped in misogyny, leaving women to participate only as spectators. Women wanted their own personal ideologies to be heard within this culture. They created smart ways to do this. A major production of the emerging third wave punk scene were DIY zines. The word zine comes from magazine. It's a self-made DIY publication of writings, essays and images, which is reproduced using a photocopier and then distributed at shows. It's meant to depict the culture or subculture's values and beliefs. It was started in the 1930s with the science fiction fandom culture and was later embraced by the punk movement which made full use of zines. A core part of the identities that these chick bands were creating was the production of their own fanzines, which they would distribute at their gigs. It is suggested that the riot girl movement scenes actually made them more famous and spread their ideas quicker than their actual music did. The information in these zines tackled all sorts of political and social issues facing women at the time. The main topics always remained sexism, body image, abuse against women, violence against women and homophobia. They were hell-bent on reclaiming derogatory phrases like bitch, cunt, slut, dyke, and pussy. They would constantly use these words in their writing, within their zines or in their lyrics, as a way to diminish the negativity connected to the word. They showed a new generation of girls that it was okay for women to be pissed off, tell men to fuck off, and fight for their rights. Sassy Magazine was first published in 1988 and ran until 1996. It was aimed at teenage girls who were fans of rock, punk, and grunge music, and it often featured articles which addressed sensitive issues which related to teenage girls that no one else wanted to talk about. In 1989, an article by Puncture was published in Sassy Magazine titled Woman, Sex, and Rock and Roll. It was aimed at women who felt intimidated by the male-dominated music scene, and it explained it was a woman's right to become part of the music scene. It was okay for women within the music scene to project themselves in an angry or frustrated manner. The piece argued that by creating female garage bands and zines focusing on political feminism, women could take their place in this music scene. Later, in 1991, Chaos Radio Station in Olympia, Washington, started a radio program called Your Dream Girl, which was hosted by Louise Mafoy, directed at this developing subculture of female musicians and bands. By 1992, around the same time as the Hill vs. Thomas case, the Riot Girl movement had begun. The first couple of Riot Girl bands which started up were Bratmobile, Bikini Kill, Heavens to Betsy, Skin Teen, and Huggy Bear, to name a few. 
Let's take a closer look at one of the pioneers of this movement, Kathleen Hanna. Born in 1968, first became interested in feminism at age nine when her mother took her to a feminist rally in Washington, D.C., where Gloria Steinem was speaking. By the 1980s, Hannah began working as a stripper to support herself financially while she was studying. After working with her fellow student, Aaron Bush Green, on a photography project for college that addressed sexism and AIDS, school administrators removed their project from the display due to its content. This, according to Hannah, was the final push she needed to get involved in activism. Hannah, together with two friends, Heidi Abergast and Tammy Ray Carland, created an independent feminist gallery called Reku. Hannah said it was her, quote, first foray into activism, end quote. She later began working for spoken word performance discussing sexism and violence against women. She even volunteered at Safe Place, a domestic violence organization. Reku would often host bands like Some Velvet Sidewalk and The Go Team before the exhibitions would open. Although Hannah enjoyed spoken word, the more she discovered the subculture of punk and rock music, the more she decided to follow the music. Hannah once said in an interview, quote, Aka asked me why writing was important to me and I said because I felt I'd never been listened to and I'd had something to say. And she said, then why are you doing spoken word? No one goes to spoken word shows. You should get in a band, end quote. At first, Hannah started a band of Heidi, Tammy and Amy Carter, the daughter of former US President Jimmy Carter. They played gigs and went on a few small tours. Hannah would then work with the Go Team drummer and popular zinester, Toby Valley. But finally, Hannah and Toby hooked up with Kathy Wilcox and Billy Boredom Karen to form the band Bikini Kill in October of 1990. Their music was hardcore, fast and loud. They wrote radical feminist lyrics like, When she talks, I hear the revolution. In her hips, there's a revolution. When she walks, the revolution's coming. In her kiss, I taste the revolution. The entire song Rebel Girl is a guide to empowering yourself and loving your friends who ooze confidence like they should. Hannah would often take her shirt off during gigs, saying, quote, if a man could do it at a show, why can't I? End quote. Hannah was known for her stage presence during shows. She would either stage dive, or if there were men catcalling or being verbally abusive, she would walk off stage into the audience. She was often physically assaulted while doing this, especially in the early days when their shows were cheap to watch. They signed with Kill Rock Stars, and in 1993, their debut full-length album was released, called Pussy Whipped. They toured through the UK, released another full-length album and a few EPs. Lucy Thane produced and directed a documentary on them called My Life Bikini Kill in the UK. Afterwards, they returned to the States, where Hannah wrote several songs for Joan Jett. A year later, they were being called pioneers of the Riot Girl movement, touring and being chased by the media. This became a bitter relationship. They felt the media was trying to manipulate their image and ended up cutting off all communication with the press. Bikini Kill broke up in 1998. One reason was because both Hannah and Valley were constantly busy. Valley was famous for being in more than three bands at a time while producing a considerable amount of feminist scenes and Hannah would collaborate with many other musicians too. The band members also blamed the strain of touring on needing a break. Although the majority of their fans were women, they were still decent male supportive in the scene. Male counterparts like Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl both supported and performed with some of these badass bitches. 
Hannah and Kurt were friends before Nirvana was discovered. One drunken night, Hannah wrote graffiti on Kurt's bedroom wall, which read, Kurt smells like teen spirit, which prompted his inspiration for that song. Kurt Cobain once said, quote, The future of rock belongs to women, end quote. The riot girl movement was an underground movement which saw feminist punk bands preaching the feminist word while rocking out on stage. Through punk music, they spread the gospel of feminism. Their music and lyrics targeted issues such as domestic abuse, general violence against women, sexuality, racism, patriarchy, and female empowerment, with lyrics like, White boy, don't laugh, don't cry, just die. Radical bands were also known for inviting audience members up on stage to discuss personal experiences. They wanted their fans to be able to talk about sensitive issues such as rape. At certain shows, the bands would ask the Mosh Boys to take a step aside for a song or two so that the girls in the audience could stand right in front, allowing them to feel empowered. The radical movement later spread to places like the UK. Although many of the male bands of the 90s went on to sign of major record labels and gain worldwide fame, the Riot Girl bands always remained underground and opted to sign with indie labels instead, such as Kill Rock Stars and K Records. Others remained even more underground by creating their own DIY cassette labels, basically recording their music on cassettes and selling them at cost price or just distributing them at shows for free. By 1994, most of the original girl bands had broken up. The Riot Girl bands blamed their brief period of existence on the fact that the mainstream media had corrupted the female music scene by flooding it with sex symbols. The bands felt that their radical, angry, political, feminist music scene was manipulated, polished, cleaned up and packaged as cute, happy, complacent sex symbols to be sold to girls all around the world. An example of this would be the Spice Girls and their message of girl power, especially since Bikini Kill coined the term girl power in a zine a few years before Spice Girls globalized it. All the Riot Girl zines were archived by zinewiki.com and Riot Girl Press, started by Erica Reinstein and Mae Summers in 1992 in Washington, D.C. Since the autumn of 2010, the collection has been housed at New York University's False Library, much of it donated by Kathleen Hanna and Joanne Faitman. They called the collection A Girl's Guide to Taking Over the World, writing from the Girl Zine Revolution. When talking about the significance of such zines, Singer-songwriter Anne Magnuson once said, quote, When I think of how much benefit my teenage self could have gained from the multitude of zines that have proliferated over the past decade, I weep for the lost potential. Except for Joan of Arc and Anne Frank, the thoughts of teenage girls have rarely been taken seriously. End quote. This ideology of a strong female identity slowly infiltrated into other parts of the entertainment industry, such as film and television with shows like Buffy the Vampire Slayer becoming one of the most watched TV shows of the 90s. As one character from The Big Bang Theory said about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, quote, I mean, you do get that usually the monster chases the pretty girl, but this time the pretty girl chases the monsters, end quote. Even in children's entertainment, women were becoming portrayed as fighters instead of princesses. An example of this is when Disney released Mulan in 1998, the first strong female character in a Disney film. The portrayal of powerful female lead characters in TV and film is what we are currently experiencing in the fourth wave of feminism, 
with movies such as Mad Max, Fury Road, Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and New Girl. Third wave feminists had the support and foundations created by the civil rights movement as well as the first and second waves of feminism. This platform of stability allowed these women to focus on areas where the second wave of feminism failed as well as tackle previously unexplored fronts of society needing change for the advancement of women, such as women in entertainment and the media. This meant that at times during the third wave, certain ideologies surrounding feminism needed to evolve and be redefined for a more modern society and a more progressive feminist. In Feminista, Young Women, Feminism and the Future, co-written in 2000 by Jennifer Baumgarten and Amy Richards, it states, quote, Feminism could change with every generation and individual. The fact that feminism is no longer limited to arenas where we expect to see it, now, Ms. Women's Studies and Red-Suited Congresswoman, has proven this. End quote. The internet was another new frontier for feminism in the 90s. Feminists established their online presence early on in the game. Towards the end of the 90s, blogging became the new conversational platform and zines evolved in that direction. Blogs aided in broadening the focus of third-wave feminism to not just straight white women, but women from different races, sexual orientations, or otherwise marginalized groups. Blogs became an incubator for intersectional feminism in the late 90s and early 2000s. If a feminist blog failed to be diverse in the issues it tackled, then the blogosphere could write comments, have spurted debates, or readers could submit their own articles and even start their own blogs which included the topics they wanted to discuss. Many feminist bloggers showed respect for their readers by being open to criticism and new ideas. A well-known feminist blogger named Valenti, who used to write for the famous blog Feminista, said, quote, There were a tremendous number of people writing online at the time, writing about feminism in all sorts of different ways, end quote. Several major issues came to define much of the third wave discussion. Intersexuality, maternal leave, sexual freedom, how women are portrayed in media and entertainment, violence against women, and my personal favorite, reclaiming derogatory terms. Women in the 90s were more comfortable in their bodies, thanks to the activism of the 60s and 70s, and now wished to change traditional notions of sexuality. This meant that third wave feminism believed that women should not only be allowed to explore their own sexual desires without being labeled a slut, but that women should be allowed to demand the same gratification in the bedroom which men do, and that everyone should become more educated about women's sexuality. Essentially, the ideology was that whether we are talking about an orgasm, childbirth, gender identity, or any other aspect of female sexuality, a woman's body is something controlled by that woman alone, and should be embraced and celebrated, rather than neglected or seen as an embarrassing factor. Vagina-centered topics became the new conversation of the decade. These women wanted total sexual liberation for women. In 1998, author, playwright, and activist Eve Ensler founded the non-profit charity V-Day. With it, she aspired to end rape culture in our society and to show both women and men that the female anatomy is not a cringe-worthy thing, but a beautiful essence of a woman. Every year on the 14th of February, the V-Day event is held, a global day of activism. V-Day uses artistic expressions to generate awareness through public performances the most famous example being the Vagina Monologues. The Vagina Monologues was a creative project written by Eve Ensler. It was an episodic play originally premiered at a year arts center in New York. The play consists of stories of both consensual and non-consensual sexual experiences and deals with topics of body image, reproduction, sex work, 
race, sexuality, and genital mutilation. A few years later, famous female celebrities, mainly actresses, came together to perform the vagina monologues, which really assisted in exposure for the charity. The funds raised by V-Day events are used to aid female victims of abuse. An estimated total of 80 million has been raised and 12,000 community-based anti-violence programs, including safe houses in Congo, Haiti, Kenya, Egypt and Iraq, have been established since V-Day started. As we saw with the Riot Girl bands, the third wave of feminism also strove to reclaim words which had been used to insult, diminish and suppress women, such as cunt, bitch, slut and whore. Inga Mishko wrote, quote, I posit that we are free to seize a word that was kidnapped and co-opted in a painful, distant past with a ransom that costs our grandmother's freedom, children, traditions, pride and land, end quote. One could compare this with how African Americans have taken back the N-word. The first word which women would target was bitch. The all-girl band Filth Columns single All Women Are Bitches, released in 1994, fueled this. The idea of reclaiming something that had been turned against women is a method now used in the fourth wave of feminism, which started in the 2010s. Through events such as slut walks, where women walk through the street dressed in a manner some would call sluttish. The first slut walk was a protest in response to a Toronto police officer who had said, quote, women should avoid dressing like sluts in order not to be victimized, end quote. By acts of defiance which were built up to engender a cultural and social shift, third wave feminism began to have an impact. By the end of 1992, following the events of the Hill vs. Thomas case, six women had become part of the US Senate. This gave 1992 the label Year of the Woman. In 1993, Take Your Daughter to Work Day became a national day in the US. This was meant to build up young girls' confidence and excitement towards the variety of career options. In 1994, a monumental victory was won for women in the US when the Violence Against Women Act was passed into law. Fuck, that's late. And lastly, in 1996, the first edition of the magazine Bitch, Feminist Response to Pop Culture was published. The theories of third-wave feminism opened doors which would give rise to other movements, such as vegetarian ecofeminism, a movement believing that all forms of oppression are linked and must be destroyed, including that of human or non-human. Transfeminism, a movement created by transgenders for transgenders, focusing on how the liberation of women allowed for the birth of other liberation movements. And one of my personal favorites, sex positivity. Both a philosophical and social movement which believes sexuality and sexual exploration is not only healthy but also needed. With a strong accent on safe, consensual sex, this movement also emphasizes on comprehensive sex education as being key for sex positivity to be possible. This movement was less about changing laws within politics and more about individual identity, fighting norms within our culture, especially violence against women. And of course, changing the female image of in-media and entertainment in order to provide young girls with examples of strong female energy that had been so long lacking. The third wave of feminism inevitably gave rise to the fourth wave of feminism. Maybe we need to think of some new names. The fourth wave started between 2011 and 2012, pioneered by the Me Too movement, which consists of female celebrities, mainly actresses, exposing and calling to end the sexual harassment and abuse in Hollywood. This prompted the fourth wave to intensely focus on the rape culture and violence against women culture, which persists in our society. 
The fourth wave is also mostly focused around social media, all the positive and negative ways in which it can assist feminism, and how it can be used to bring out awareness all around the world in a matter of hours, and how female victims can utilize social media to expose their abusers. Most importantly, with events such as attempts to make abortion illegal in the States again, the fourth wave has shown us as women that our freedoms are never definite. It's relatively easy as women living in 2020 with more rights, freedoms and liberties than any other before us. As women in the developed world, we are not pushed to blowing up things or throwing ourselves in front of horses. It's tempting to think that we do not need to worry about our stance in life as women anymore. In Jennifer Baumgarten and Amy Richards' Manifesta Young Women, Feminism and the Future, it reads, quote, For anyone born after the early 1960s, the presence of feminism in our lives is taken for granted. For our generation, feminism is like fluoride. We scarcely notice that we have it. It's simply in the water, end quote. I would argue that today as Western women, we have more to fight for than we ever have before. We must not only fight to maintain the rights we enjoy, but most importantly, we need to continue fighting for those of us who do not have the voice, resources and power that some of us are privileged to possess. There are women in cultures all around the world who could not even dream of embracing the freedoms that many of us have. I have little doubt the struggle will continue and I assume it will move in directions that we cannot predict. There's never going to be one ideology, group or wave that solves gender issues in our society. Bit by bit, however, each evolution has brought us further towards understanding ourselves and each other when it comes to these issues. That each feminist wave underwent fractionalism and differing opinions is a strength and not a weakness in our pursuit for women's rights. As we have seen throughout this series, when it comes to fighting for the rights of ourselves, our mothers, our sisters and our daughters, we have no shortage of ideas and an amazing ability to bring them to the world. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>